And as you're being seated this morning, um, if you could open your bulletins to page seven and your Bibles to the book of Proverbs. We have a bit of a unique uh, sermon this morning in that we're looking at a theme that runs throughout the book of Proverbs. So one of the things that you'll notice as you read Proverbs is that there is an arrangement to the first nine chapters, but as you get to chapters kind of 10 to 31, there's kind of a, a scattering and smattering of wise sayings uh, that the Lord has provided for us in his word that are not necessarily uh, thematically arranged. But one of the things we're going to do in this series as we go through the book of Proverbs is, is take a theme and show how it runs through the different wise sayings in the chapters 10 through 31. So we're going to do one of those thematic sermons this morning. And I thought because it's holiday season and because we're going to be getting together with family and friends and extended relatives, I thought it's probably a good time to talk about dealing with interpersonal conflict and resolving uh, fights and quarrels and pursuing peace. Because I, I don't know about you, but sometimes when you get together with people, uh, you don't always agree on everything 100%. And so one of the omnipresence realities of life is not only death and taxes, but dealing with conflict as well. So that's what we're going to look at in the book of Proverbs. And so what I tried to do is take the proverbial sayings that I'm going to uh, touch on in the sermon, and I laid them out for you in your bulletin, because instead of having us jump all over the place, I thought I'd give you them in, in one location so we can see them there together. So let me let me read through these, and then we'll pray, and then we'll dig into this theme. So starting with Proverbs 10, 12. So what God's wisdom tells us. Hatred stirs up strife, but love covers all offenses. Good sense makes one slow to anger, and it is his glory to overlook an offense. The way of a fool is right in his own eyes, but a wise man listens to advice. All a man's ways are pure in his own eyes, but his motives are weighed out by the Lord. All a man's ways seem right to him, but the Lord weighs the heart. The beginning of strife is like letting out water, so quit before the quarrel breaks out. Whoever conceals his transgressions will not prosper, but he who confesses and forsakes them will obtain mercy. Like a gold ring or an ornament of gold is a wise reprover to a listening ear. Better is open rebuke than hidden love. Faithful are the wounds of a friend. Whoever rebukes a man will afterward find more favor than he who flatters with the tongue. Let's pray. Lord, we need your wisdom. Lord, we thank you that you are the all-wise God who pours out his wisdom in abundance. Lord, there's so many areas where we lack wisdom and need it desperately, and one in particular is in the matter of dealing with and handling conflict wisely. Lord, would you use your wisdom to grow us into those who know how to walk down the path of peace and be peacemakers who reflect the Prince of Peace. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. When you think back to your childhood, can you remember some of the constant arguments and fights that you would get into as a kid with your friends or siblings? I remember that they tended to be very silly. Things like, which superhero has the best superpower? Or whether my invisible blast from my invisible gun actually hit you or not, and whether you're, you're still in the game or not. And that these fights just continue on, and the silliness of them just multiplies as a kid. And you would think that as you get older, as you grow up and as you mature, all fights, petty arguments, silly disagreements would be a thing of the past because you're more mature, you're more sensible now. But unfortunately, I'm guessing for all of you, that has not been your experience. And I'm guessing if you, if you made a list of the arguments and conflicts that you even had 
as an adult, and you separated them into two categories, conflicts that were unavoidable and necessary versus conflicts that were avoidable and unnecessary, I'm guessing the list over here would be a lot longer than the list over here. For example, consider this fictional, and I stress the word fictional, conflict between newlyweds Jack and Jill. These do not represent any, any people in my life or yours, okay? The first argument, which they never saw coming as newlyweds, was over what time is properly considered bedtime. Now, Jack took the godly and theological approach and unemotionally reasoned that because God had designed the sun to go down at a certain time and bring darkness to our side of the world, that he was in his kind providence telling us that it's now time to go to bed. Well, Jack was a creature and he did not want to argue with the creator, but Jill was not as wise as Jack. She decided, on the other hand, that because she was not tired, she was not going to bed. And so she reasoned foolishly. And not wanting to pass up the opportunity to properly inform Jill of the grievous error of her ways, Jack gently but firmly insisted that she stop being so selfish and do exactly as Jack say. For some reason, which I, I have, I'm sorry, which Jack has not discovered to this day, Jill did not appreciate that and things escalated from there. That's a fictional argument. I could see that happening and I could, I can really see Jack's point. But many people assume that you, you go into an area of life, like, like marriage, and because you're, you're deeply in love with one another, because you feel all the feelings for one another, you're never going to argue. You're never going to fight. Things are going to be sweet and wonderful, peaches and creams. And many people have that same naivety toward relationships even within the church amongst fellow believers. Right? The assumption is that because you embrace the same things, because you believe in Christ, and you're, you're in the church together, united on these wonderful things, that it's going to be this conflict-free zone. But there is one major factor being overlooked in both those scenarios. In each of those scenarios, the people in those group is made up of sinners, including yourself. And there is that major factor, which is often overlooked in all our relationships, that anytime we're interacting with another person, we are interacting with a fellow sinner. And anytime they're interacting with us, they're interacting with a fellow sinner. Sin is at the root of all conflict, ever since the first sin and ever since all sins after that. And it still affects our hearts and it still affects our relationships. Which means the question is not if you will experience conflict in your relationships. The question is how will you handle conflict when it arises? Will you handle it foolishly according to your own wisdom or you handle it wisely according to God's wisdom? It's not if but when and how then will you handle it when it pops up? So with that in mind, the big idea for this message is we're going to look at how does God's wisdom apply to the area of relational conflict? And so here's kind of the big idea. Because relational conflict is unavoidable in our relationships, we must learn how to wisely pursue peace and reconciliation as God's peacemakers. Because relation, relational conflict is unavoidable in our relationships, we must learn how to wisely pursue peace and reconciliation. So the path of peace that we're going to try to walk down as believers is a path that we need to understand has two ditches on either side of the road that we want to avoid. On one side of the path of peace is the ditch marked peace breaking. And this is what is often called the, the fight response to any conflict 
that arises. And there, there's a wide range of peace-breaking responses, of, of fight responses, but they all boil down to this. You see conflict as a competition and the person you're in conflict with as your opponent and you need to win. You'll do whatever it takes to make sure that you come out on top by either blaming, attacking, or just wearing them down. So that's one ditch, peace-breaking, that we want to avoid. The other one, on the other side of the path, is the ditch marked peace-faking. And this is what is often labeled the flight or escape response to any conflict that arises. And all the various peace-faking responses boil down to this. You see all conflict as harmful and dangerous, and therefore you're going to do whatever it takes to avoid it at all costs. And so you treat conflict like my kids treat picking up their clothes in their room. As long as you gather them up, throw them in the closet, and shut the door, and you can't see them, the room is clean, right? Well, that's not how it works. You cannot pretend that conflict doesn't exist. It's there. But in order to get away from it, you have to run away from it. So often in in this response, people move from friend group to friend group, from job to job, from church to church, and each change is instigated by the fact that conflict has arisen and they do not want to deal with it. Well, as believers, we need to know that both of these ditches are ones we need to avoid. Both of these ditches are not the path of peacemaking that God has paved for us. Conflict is not a competition that we need to win, and it is not a danger that we need to avoid. In fact, it is an area where we can practice and apply God's wisdom and see the blessing of that wisdom in our relationships. So what does it look like to apply God's wisdom to conflict? How can we walk down the path of peace and avoid the ditches that are on either side? What I want to do is offer five directions that God's wisdom gives us that help us navigate the path of peace toward the goal of reconciliation. So five directions that God gives us to walk down the path of peace. Direction number one, we need to prioritize God's glory and God's wisdom in all conflict. Direction one, prioritize God's glory and wisdom in all conflict. Every conflict needs to be approached like we approach every other area of life as Christians, with a God-centered aim rather than a self-centered agenda. When you think of the two ditches I just mentioned, the the fight or the flight uh, ditch, both of those suffer from the same issue. They're both focused on self. In the fight response, self must win. In the flight response, self must get away so that I'm not uncomfortable, I'm not made to deal with this. Both of those, though, ignore the glory of God and his wisdom that needs to be applied. So think of Proverbs 3, 5 to 7, which applies in the area of conflict resolution and peacemaking as much as in any other area of life. Trust in the Lord with all your heart in your conflict, and do not lean on your own understanding in your conflict. In all your conflict, acknowledge him. He will make straight your paths. Be not wise in your own eyes in relational conflict. Fear the Lord and turn away from evil. It applies as much to that area as it does any area of life. Or think of the beginning of wisdom. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. What's the beginning of conflict resolution? It's the fear of the Lord as well. And here's why it's important. It's so easy in conflict to switch from focusing on God's agenda to our own agenda. Because when we are wronged, we feel as if our internal sense of justice now leaps within us and demands all wrongs be made right right now. And we decide we know how to get justice for ourselves. We take matters into our own hands because no one knows how to handle this situation better than I do. No one knows how to get justice for me like I do. And this self-centered mindset will only serve to perpetuate the problem rather than solve it. Instead, 
We need to prioritize the glory of God by looking at what his wisdom says and applying this question to all areas of conflict. Here's the question. What would it look like in this conflict to lean on the Lord's wisdom and not my own understanding? So whenever conflict arises, the main question, the first question we need to ask is, what would it look like in this scenario to lean on the Lord's wisdom and not my own understanding? This is the question we need to start with. This is the question we need to ask through the whole process. Because the minute we lose sight of that, the minute we're going to fall into one of the two ditches. So here's what the Bible says, giving us some principles of what it looks like to lean on the Lord's wisdom in our conflict. First, we lean on the Lord in conflict resolution when we look to his word to be our primary guide through this situation. The wisdom of God laid out for us in his word, especially as I've laid out here in Proverbs, is more than sufficient to help us navigate the choppy, turbulent waters of conflict. Rather than relying on our own wisdom and saying, I'm gonna, I'm gonna take my own path, we need to look at God's word. What does his word say about resolving conflict? That's how we lean on the Lord. Also, we lean on the Lord when we trust that he can work in and through this conflict that we find ourselves in. Oftentimes we think conflict is an area to avoid because it's, God can't use that in our lives. And yet it is oftentimes in conflict that God sometimes does his best work to grow us and shape us in the image of Christ. And if we're faithful to apply his wisdom to it, he often uses it to make that relationship stronger than what it was before the conflict arose. It is important to understand that we lean on the Lord when we trust him to work in and through the conflict. I have never met a conflict that I enjoyed. I've never met a conflict that I didn't, that I wanted to revisit after the fact. But there's never been a conflict that I've gone through when I leaned on the Lord's wisdom that he did not use to humble me in some way and to grow the relationship in another way. Well, finally, we lean on the Lord in relational conflict when we stop to ask this question. Should I demonstrate God's grace in this conflict by overlooking this fault and covering over a multitude of sins? Now, if you be careful with this, this is why this is wisdom. It doesn't apply in every single conflict in the same way. But one question that Proverbs forces us to ask in our wisdom is, is it wise to overlook this offense and to let it go? Because oftentimes we can spend so much time when a conflict arises, it, it takes all of our mental energy, it takes all of our, it's just running like a Rolodex in our mind that the molehill has now turned into a mountain, that the little grievance has now turned into great bitterness. And when we allow that to happen, the bitterness becomes resentment, the resentment becomes hatred, and it eventually actually corrodes our own soul and our own affections for the Lord, which is why Proverbs says this, Proverbs 10, 12, hatred stirs up strife, but love covers all offenses. Or Proverbs 19, 11, good sense makes one slow to anger, and it is his glory to overlook an offense. There's almost nothing more harmful to Christian peace and unity than harboring bitterness and resentment when the Lord is saying, let it go. Overlook an offense. Love covers a multitude of sins. And, and why is it to a person's glory to overlook an offense? Because what more reflects the glory of God's grace, who did not treat us as our sins deserve, who did not count our iniquities against us, than to let something go and say, you know, I'm not going to hold this against them. I'm going to let it go and forget it. So the first direction in navigating the path to peace is to prioritize God's glory. What does it look like to apply his wisdom to this conflict? Now, direction number two. Direction number two. 
is examine your heart and your part in this conflict. So prioritize God's glory. And number two, examine your heart and your part in this conflict. And I've found by experience, unfortunately, that if you want to pour gasoline on a conflict, then I recommend blame shifting and finger pointing. Nothing will increase a conflict more than putting all the blame on them and using your finger to point at them. This is the conflict tactic that was used in Eden, and it didn't go well. When Adam was called to account for his sin, he is the first prototypical blame shifter, and he throws his wife under the proverbial bus and says, it was the woman you gave me. I wonder how the marriage went after that. Well, if finger pointing is gasoline, then what is water on a conflict? What is water on a conflict is a humble, honest examination of our own heart and our own part in contributing to a conflict. And here's where this is important. Proverbs points out that one of the marks of a fool is that he is always blameless, never at fault, never in the wrong. Look at Proverbs 12, 15. Do you see it there in the bulletin? The way of a fool is right in his own eyes. He's done everything right, nothing wrong. But a wise man listens to advice. Or Proverbs 16, 2. All a man's ways are pure in his own eyes. I haven't done anything wrong. I'm I'm free of any blame. But his motives are weighed out by the Lord. Proverbs 21, 2. All a man's ways seem right to him, but the Lord weighs the heart. One of the marks of a fool and one of the ways to pour gasoline on a conflict is to say, I'm right, I'm pure, everything I've done is blameless in this and not take any honest, humble examination of your own heart and your own part. Now here's how Jesus takes that wisdom and turns around. The fool is only right in his eyes, but here's what Jesus says. Matthew 7, 3 to 5. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye? But do not notice the log that is in your own eye. Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when there is a log in your own eye? You hypocrite. First, take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. So in conflict, after starting with God, the next place we need to move is by examining our own heart and our own part. And this is the way of taking the log that's on our, in our own eye out so that we can see clearly if there is actually a speck in our brother's eye. It's refusing to play the part of the fool who believes he's blameless. So to examine our heart, we need to pause and reflect on the conflict by asking this question. What part of this conflict do I need to own up to? What contribution to this conflict do I need to take responsibility for and own? By asking this question, we, we take a break from our natural tendency to finger point and blame shift. And instead what we do is we turn the searchlight of God's wisdom on our own hearts. And we, we let it shine there and we let it show us if there's any contribution we have made. We look at our own hearts. Ken Sandy, who wrote a wonderful book called Peacemaker, which I highly recommend, gives this very helpful insight. He says this, have you ever noticed in a conflict where our focus naturally falls? It's on the other person and what this person did wrong. We maximize their sin and we minimize our own. Yet as we work to resolve conflicts, the last place we want to look is the first place we need to start, namely at our own faults. We won't begin to find peace until we ask ourselves this question, how can I own my part of this conflict? And he also goes on to give this very helpful bit of wisdom, which I found very useful. Even if your part is only 10%, let's say the problem is 100%, 
And when you examine it, they're really 90% to blame and you want them to own 100%. But you realize 10% of it is mine. Even if your part is only 10%, you need to take 100% responsibility for your 10%. Your job is not to take 100% responsibility for their 90%, it's to take 100% for your 10%. Reconciliation will not be possible till you fully own your part of a conflict. So here's some questions to ask your own heart as you examine your part of a conflict. When I recount this conflict, was there anything about my speech, my actions, my reactions that I could have done differently, looking back on it? Is there any truth in what this person is saying to me, even though I don't want to hear it, that I need to reckon with? Have I truly treated this other person the way I would want to be treated? When I examine my motivations that no one else can see, was I being motivated by the wrong things? Pride, power, revenge, bitterness, self-interest. We need to pray like David did in Psalm 139, 23 and 24. Not search them, O God, and let them know their own heart. But he says, search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts and see if there be any grievous way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. Now, once you've taken time to humbly and honestly examine your heart and your part, it leads you to the next direction on the path of peace, which is very important. Direction number three, we need to ask for forgiveness. We need to admit our fault. So if relational conflict could be compared to a ticking time bomb. So just watch one of the Mission Impossible movies with my kids. And there's always a bomb in there and it's always counting down and they have to find some way to defuse it. Well, if relational conflict could be compared to this ticking time bomb, what is the key to diffusing it? What's the red wire that you have to cut? It's asking for forgiveness. It's humbly coming to them, confessing your faults and saying, please forgive me. Nothing goes more to diffusing a conflict than when one person takes the initiative to humble themselves before the other person and say, I was wrong. Would you please forgive me? Even if it's only 5% or 10%. Once we've acknowledged our part in a conflict, we need to own up to it by asking for forgiveness. And now this is critical. What does asking forgiveness look like? So you know, we think it's, yeah, it's something we mastered when we were younger. And yet so many times when I ask for forgiveness, I find myself contaminating my forgiveness. To truly ask for forgiveness, we need to make an uncontaminated and specific request. An uncontaminated request for forgiveness is one that is free of the pollutants of ifs, buts, and maybes. Here's what I mean by that. Imagine you're going to someone to ask them for forgiveness, and you say, if I have offended you, would you please forgive me? What do you really mean? What you really mean is you shouldn't be offended, I shouldn't be doing this, but I'm gonna say it so that we can get this over with. Or if you say, please forgive me, but you make me so angry. What you really mean is, you make me angry and I shouldn't be having to do this. If you could just work on yourself. Now think of it like this. If you're really thirsty, and someone notices you're thirsty, and they come to bring you a glass of water, but just before they hand it to you, they take it back and they spit in it, and then hand it back to you. Are you drinking that glass of water? You're not. That's what a forgiveness with if, buts, and maybes is like. It's like someone who's looking for a cold glass of water, and just before you hand it to him, you take it back, you spit in it with an if, but, or maybe, and then hand it to him and say, would you please accept this as a token of my uh, request for forgiveness. To truly ask for forgiveness, it needs to be uncontaminated, and it needs to be specific. In your request, acknowledge specifically what God has brought to light that you have done to contribute to the conflict and own it 
fully. Own it fully. And I would also add, in light of Proverbs 17, 14, it should not only be uncontaminated and specific, but it should be quick and timely. Quick and timely. The minute the Lord prods and prompts you by his spirit, convicts you of your part in a contribution, the longer you let it fester, the worse it gets. The sooner you go, the better it gets. Proverbs 17, 14 says this, the beginning of strife is like letting out water, so quit before the quarrel breaks out. Now, the picture here in the ancient world is there, there's a dam holding back water and someone notices a leak. And instead of addressing that leak right away, they just walk by and say, yeah, it's just a small leak, no big deal. And they come back two days later and what's happened? Leak has grown. There's more leaks, there's more leaks. And eventually, if they keep ignoring it, the, the whole dam breaks and now you have a flood instead of a leak. And if you've ever done any projects in your home, if you see a small leak and you ignore it, it always becomes a bit of, it's always better to fix a small leak in a sink than a flood in the kitchen. That's what Proverbs is saying here. The longer it lingers, the more bitterness builds up. And as one author said, bitterness is the poison that we drink in the hopes that it will kill and harm someone else. It only ends up harming you. When we honestly and humbly ask for forgiveness in the midst of a conflict, it's amazing how the Lord uses it not only to diffuse the situation, but to bring healing and blessing to that relationship. So Proverbs 28, 13 says this, whoever conceals his transgressions will not prosper but he who confesses and forsakes them will obtain mercy. So asking for forgiveness is part of God's direction for walking the path of peace. Now the next one, which be very careful with because the order is very intentional. So direction number four, confront others gently or rebuke others gently. And here's, here's the importance of the steps. We must start with God so that our agenda is framed by him and not self then we must start by examining ourselves by first doing surgery on our own hearts before we go to someone else. And it's only after we've humbled ourselves, owned our part, that we can be ministers of mercy toward other peoples. Because instead of doing it from a place of pride where we're standing over them, speaking down to them, we do it from a place of service because we've humbled ourselves before them and we're, as that we're looking up to them, wanting to care for them and serve them. So the order of conflict resolution is very important. If you've ever done one of those escape rooms or if you have a lock or some, some sort of code thing, if you do things in the wrong order, it messes things up and you have to go back to the beginning and start all over. So we, we did a, a, one of those escape rooms one time and we had jumped ahead to the third thing and the person gave us a clue and said, no, there's two other things you have to do first. That's what happens sometimes in relational conflict. We, we desperately want to go to them first and say, hey, before we get into this, I just want to let you know what you've done wrong. And the Lord is saying, no, start with me, start with yourself, then move to them. So to confront others gently, we need to do it in the right order, and we do it by asking this question. How can I lovingly, gently serve others by helping them see their part of this conflict? How can I lovingly, gently serve others by helping them see their part of this conflict? And this is just as important as humbling yourself and asking for forgiveness. Because if you want true reconciliation, both people need to own their part. Now, you cannot make them own it, but you can be an instrument of mercy in their life. So perhaps in your mind, pointing out someone's contribution to a conflict seems unloving and unenjoyable. But look at what Proverbs says about the call to be an agent of rebuke or, or confront them gently. Proverbs 25:12, like a gold ring or an ornament of gold is a wise reprover to a listening ear. Proverbs 27, five and six, better is open rebuke than hidden love. Faithful are the wounds of a friend. And then Proverbs 28, 23, 
Whoever rebukes a man will afterward find more favor than he who flatters with his tongue. What Proverbs is saying here is that as difficult as it is, as, as sometimes as much as we want to avoid it, when we've humbled ourselves and we do come to them and confront them, it is actually a greater blessing to them and a greater blessing to us to actually point out their fault and bring true reconciliation and restoration to the conflict. And picture it like this. Imagine you're at a bagel shop. Imagine a bagel bistro and you ordered the everything bagel triple bypass sandwich, the best one that they have there. And you eat it, you enjoy it. But like everyone knows, when you eat an everything bagel, what do you have to do when you're done eating an everything bagel? You gotta check your teeth. You gotta look for those poppy seeds and all those things. Well, let's say you, you didn't look at it this morning and you're about to go to the most important business meeting of your life. You're gonna stand before the president of the company and you got poppy seeds popping out everywhere in your teeth. And you're sitting with friends and nobody says anything to you. They see it, they laugh, and nobody says anything. But just as you're about to leave that store to that meeting, the person holding the door says, hey, you might wanna rinse with some water because you have poppy seeds all over your teeth. Now you're embarrassed, but you're thankful because they helped you avoid something that you would not have avoided had they not pointed it out to you. That's how we should view the ministry of confronting others gently. It is helping people see that they have poppy seeds in their teeth and that they should probably take them out and deal with them. Now, the way you do this requires much wisdom because he says it's like gold in the ring is an open rebuke to a listening ear. So one of the questions you have to ask is, will this help or will this hurt? Will this person listen and receive it or maybe do I need to wait? And some of it's timing, right? Proverbs requires the right proverb at the right time. And it requires wisdom to what is the right proverb and what's the right time to apply it. So it requires something. And I would recommend even the right way. So if you send a text message four days later, probably not the best way to do it. But when you say, hey, can we meet for breakfast? Sit face to face, something like that. That is a better medium of communication than an impersonal one. And so... Rebuke is, is not a fun ministry, but it is a necessary one. And, and I say this as one who, I, I want to avoid giving rebukes as much as possible. But when I look at the times that the Lord has brought someone in my life who rebuked me, I remember one time I was over at a friend's house. He was a, you know older pastor, seasoned man. He called me after we had come and hung out and he said, hey, I want to let you know that I noticed that when you talk to your wife this way, it didn't seem to go so well. So I might recommend that you would talk to her a different way. And he was right. I was, con- I was humbled right there. And because of what he said, and because he said it, I was able to grow in how I love my wife even better. And I've been, I have, for some reason, the Lord wants me to be the recipient of many rebukes because I've gotten plenty of them. <laughs> and they've helped. And I appreciate all of them. Um, it's, it's good to have people like that in your life who will stab you in the front rather than in the back, right? Faithful are the, a true friend stabs you in the front, not in the back. Well, last one, number five. To walk down the path of peace, we need to encourage reconciliation, pursue reconciliation. The ultimate destination of walking down the path of peace is not to just end the conflict, get it over with. It's not to win the conflict and be right. It is to restore the relationship so that there is peace and unity and fellowship restored. And so think about it in the body of Christ. We're going to spend eternity together. So we might as well learn to get along now, right? Maybe you've you've heard that poem, to dwell above with saints in love, oh, that will be glory. But to dwell below with saints you know, well, that's a different story. And it's true. In one sense, the Lord brings us together 
not necessarily to make us compatible and line up with one another. He brings us together so that iron would sharpen iron. Now, if you've ever used iron to sharpen iron or scrape one metal against another, it is not a pleasant and necessarily peaceful thing. There's friction. But through that friction, there comes growth and refining and chiseling and shaping. And that's what God wants with us. And yet, we need to do it in a way where we're always pursuing reconciliation, restoring the relationship. Now, listen to Paul's wisdom in Romans 12, 18 about this path of peace. He says this, If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Paul is a realist of the utmost class. He says, if possible, so far as it depends on you. He understands you cannot make a person reconcile with you, but you can do everything in your power to pursue peace with others. So essentially, encouraging reconciliation is living out Paul's so far as it depends on you. So whenever you're in a conflict, ask this question before you call it quits. Have I exhausted the steps I need to take to reconcile this issue, this matter, this relationship? Because we want to pursue reconciliation. Now, these five directives, I believe, are, are, are very helpful, very wise. They'll be very effective in your life if you follow them and follow them wisely. And yet, we need something else as Christians because we can apply this wisdom, we can do these five steps, and yet we need to understand that without the proper motivation, without seeing them in connection to the gospel, we will not apply them rightly and we'll not live them out properly. We'll just treat them as another law that we apply and follow, and yet we need the gospel. So if we would be peacemakers, we need the motivation of knowing how the Prince of Peace has treated us. We need the motivation of knowing how the Prince of Peace has treated us because he alone is the one who exemplifies what it looks like to pursue peace. And he alone is the one who provides the motivation and power to be peacemakers. So think of this. Think of Christ. Christ has shown us the patience that is required in restoring peace. How, how patient Christ has been in putting up with all the history of all the world's sin, including our personal history and our personal sin. In his patience, he has time and time again held back his discipline, his justice, so that we may come to a place of repentance and a knowledge of the truth. Christ is also the one who has shown the initiation that is required to be a peacemaker. He did not sit on his heavenly throne waiting for us to come to him and say, we're sorry. Instead, while we were still peacebreakers with God, he humbled himself, left the glories of heaven, and became a servant who was obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. While we were still sinners, Christ took the initiative to die for us and bring us to peace with God. And Jesus also accepts responsibility for something he did not do. Jesus accepts responsibility in the peacemaking process between us and God. Though all the blame and all the conflict between God and man rests on our shoulders. Christ took it upon his own shoulders. Though we alone owed the debt, Christ paid it. This is one area where Jesus' grace shines in contrast to Adam. Adam has his bride standing there next to him. Conflict has arisen and he blames his bride. Christ standing there next to his bride has all the right to blame her and yet he takes all the blame on himself. He accepts responsibility. He's patient. He takes initiation. He accepts responsibility and Jesus also shows us what it's like to go to the utmost extremes in peacemaking because he loves even his enemies. When Jesus was insulted, when he was abused, he did not return evil for evil. Instead, while the crowds are there mocking him, yelling at him, jeering him, he prays, Father, forgive them, for they know not what 
they do. So if we would be peacemakers, we must know and worship the Prince of Peace because in Christ alone we're reconciled to God and in Christ alone we're recreated to be agents of making peace in the lives of others. Let's pray.